This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Incredible Health is a company that connects hospitals with nurses and other healthcare workers. So let's talk about what our next guest has seen through the pandemic and what the future may look like to protect vital healthcare workers. Dr. Iman Abu Zaid is CEO and co-founder at Incredible Health. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Abu Zaid, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So tell us a little bit about what you have seen through the pandemic and kind of where we are right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So what we've seen is we did a pretty in-depth study of nurses uh, throughout April, over 400 nurses, and we also analyzed the data in our database. And what we're realizing, what we're seeing is that nurses are having a very difficult time with this pandemic and the pre-existing issues that already existed in this industry, like staffing shortages, burnout, and stress are continuing to happen. Um, Over Only 2% of of nurses have said that their facility was very prepared to deal with COVID-19. And so knowing this business as, as well as you do, both the sort of the, the, pra- the practice and the logistics of it, as well as the economics of it, uh, Dr. Abu Zaid, I, how did this happen? I, I, was it just a, a matter of unpreparedness? Was it just the, the size and scope of it? What do you owe it to? I think it was both the, the shock. It was a shock to the health system. Mm-hmm. It really was. And, uh, you know, when, when 59% of nurses are saying that they don't have the adequate personal protective equipment to practice safely, you know, that, that just shows the lack of preparedness and, and the shock to the system. Now, I know that hospital executives are scrambling to fix this. Um, but It's still you know, a problem. So yeah. you're saying it's still a problem. It it's still a problem. So where is the breakdown? I mean, you understand this world. And, and you know, Jason and I have had a lot of conversations trying to understand you know, the supply chain and everybody talked about shortages and we had federal officials saying we're doing everything we, you know, we're getting all the equipment everybody needs. And yet there doesn't seem to be the case. What happened? Was it a case that we needed a federal initiative um, and didn't get it? Yeah, I mean, I think all around, whether it was the hospital uh, industry itself or government, it was just a lack of preparedness is quite shocking here. And it wasn't just about, this is not just about personal protective equipment that's lacking. I mean, even the infection control protocols that hospitals needed to put into place, there were not clear guidelines coming from the CDC. So each hospital had to scramble to put their infection control protocols in place. You know, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Abizade, you know, we've also talked a lot to, you know, as Carol mentioned, sort of the heads of hospital systems and sort of how it's going to be for consumers of healthcare and how we may interact with doctors and, and whatnot differently going forward. How's it going to change the, the nursing business? I mean, you have, a, you have an MBA from Wharton. You've been involved in startups. You worked at McKinsey. Like, you understand the business side of this really well. How does the business of nursing change going forward? Okay, so even before the pandemic, there was a massive nursing shortage. 
our our health system needed another there will be we will be one million nurses short by 2024 it is one of the biggest skilled labor shortages we have in this country hmm. this pandemic is expected to make it even worse because our demand for health care as a country continues to go up now we don't see that changing after the pandemic either this is generally a group of workers that's underappreciated overworked and there are simply not enough of them and so we'll need to continue doing whatever we can to increase the number of nurses in this country. What does an average nurse, I hate that saying an average nurse, but what does a nurse make today? So the national average is around 80000 to $90,000 for a hospital nurse. In states like California, it's a bit higher, like $110,000 or $120,000 average. So why aren't people going into nursing? Um, number one, it's a very tough profession, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a challenging job. Um, the second is that nursing schools don't uh, necessarily have the capacity to train more nurses. There are always huge wait lists for entering nursing school, and, it, and they're still challenging to get in. Also, the training of nurses is, not, uh, is inadequate. Uh, even after nursing school, uh, getting appropriately trained in a specific specialty has a lot of limitations because it's very expensive to train a nurse. And so you're obviously in the business of, of technology and using technology to maybe help eliminate some of these bottlenecks how does it work how does it work going forward and how can technology help us here yeah so in our case for incredible health we work with over 200 hospitals across the country including top academic medical centers like stanford and cedar sinai and what we've done is really we've automated entire processes of of hiring and screening uh, using software so we've automated the screening of the nurses we've automated the custom matching to specific employers that meet their needs um, and the end result is hiring happening in less than 30 days instead of it taking 90 days, which is the nurse, national average to fill a nurse position today. Wow. So how, how much of an impact is that making? Only have about 40 seconds left here. Yeah, so what we've already seen, I mean, um, it's ta- in, what we've seen in the survey is that for ED, emergency department and intensive care nurses, it's, they're hi- getting hired even faster in 19 days these days because of the pandemic. And mm. so we see this acceleration continuing to happen and technology and hiring continue to be adopted across health systems in, in this country. Well, right. really some great insight. Yeah, really good. Really good. Profession. And I think underreported, candidly, totally. um, the shortage that we're talking about. Uh, great work. We really appreciate it. Dr. Iman Abuzaid is co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Fascinating background uh, she has working at McKinsey and MBA and uh, has worked for a COSLA-backed startup as well. Right. Uh, really interesting. Like pulls together, you know, it comes at it yeah. from so many different perspectives, right? So fascinating. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So Jason Kelly. Yeah. Don't you remember that Bloomberg Business Week cover? I think it was last October. Everything is private equity right now. I think you had uh, some some involvement in that. I did. I do remember that. I remember it quite well. Uh, it turns out it was a uh, fairly prescient and an unbelievably uh, powerful and important story in the magazine this week. Heather Pearlberg wrote it. Max Chafkin edited it. He is the features editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week. Here to tell us all about it on the phone from Queens. MC Hammer, what's going on? Hey there, how's it going? This is a big story. This is it's a long read um, and pretty intense. Tell us what Heather and you guys found when it comes to private equity and the medical business. So, as you said, you know, 
PE, private equity, has, you know, sort of been all over our economy. And, of course, the healthcare industry is, you know, one of the biggest or maybe the biggest um, industry in the U.S. And so, so probably wouldn't surprise you that private equity investors are, are, are in there. Um, what Heather did is she looked at a specific field, dermatology. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely not the only field where there's a lot of activity here, but it's one where, where it's sort of everywhere. Uh, some people think as many as 10% of the uh, dermatologists in America work for a private equity firm or work for a company that's backed by a private equity firm. And what's interesting, you know, kind of when you get into it, you start to see some of the ways that our healthcare system um, isn't working particularly well. And, you know, one thing, one of the stories we've seen, and Heather gets into this in the, in, in the piece, but one of the stories we've, we've seen with the coronavirus is you have these ER doctors who are being um, either laid off or furloughed at a time when everybody in America is focused on health care. You, you know, you'd think watching the news that this would be a great time to be in health care, but it's, 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 of course, a terrible time, and it's because of the way these companies are structured. They are, you know, they're, they're structured in a way where they need cash. They've been growing really fast. A lot of them are very leveraged. And when you start not having um, elective procedures, when, when demand for the services uh, goes down, that, that's when things start to break down, and, and, and there are some of these kind of um, stories that really seem pretty terrible. Well, and it's interesting. So, you know, these dermatologists, right, dermatology practices, I mean, they were not deemed essential, correct, through this shutdown? Yeah. Um, no. It's, it's all very much a gray area and, and, and state and local laws. There are all, there are all sorts of differences. Um, but, but the lead anecdote in the story, which is very memorable, is of one of the bigger chains in the country. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a uh, large dermatology chain in California, which you know, right at the height of the crisis was basically calling people up and telling them to keep their Botox appointments, among other things. And, and um, Heather uh, listened in on a, a sort of a, a Zoom conference that was held for the industry where, where the CEO of the company um, sort of explained himself saying that, you know, this is just like a grocery store where if they're selling flour and meat, it's not like they're going to stop selling candy. And so the analogy would be that, you know, offering Botox is like um, selling candy. And, you know, that obviously makes sense maybe from a business point of view. It's, it's these, these companies definitely need to keep revenue if they want to uh, uh, survive. But, but, of course, many doctors, and this is a conversation that's going on everywhere if you talk to doctors, feel very uncomfortable with this. They feel like they are being asked to choose between sort of profits and um, traditional medical ethics. Well, and and I think that's a really important point, Max, that Heather dives into pretty deeply into the story, which is, you know, there are some workarounds and private equity is about nothing if not workarounds in terms of being able to structure deals in certain ways. I mean, this is a business, the healthcare business that the American Medical Association, I believe, essentially says, listen, this isn't just your regularly your regular old sort of like PL that you're managing here and yet they sort of found a way through these uh, managed companies to to basically buy these things up and they're only sort of getting bigger right yeah they're they're only getting bigger and and they probably continue to get bigger because because the economy is so bad right now and, and these practices are, are failing um, uh, or close to failure and you know big private equity firm comes in with a lot of money you know that's going to look perhaps more attractive than it did before. I think we should say, and it's, it's probably an important point, that there, not everything about this industry 
is is bad. I mean, they are, and 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 what the, what they'll say when you talk to them is that they are expanding access for people. You know, right. one one upside of growth is that is that you know these practices are fanning out. It's, it's potentially you know more convenient for patients. Um, also, you know, a lot of people have talked about how how hard it is to be a doctor in America, and and you know helping these doctors get paid a little bit more money. You know, that all sounds like a good thing. The the problem is when you get these. Um, sort of private equity roll-ups where they're, they've already cut a lot of costs, and then all of a sudden they try to do like another roll-up, you know, taking two, uh, two sort of large groups and merging them together. And, and you basically, you know, according to Heather's sources, and she talked to lots and lots of doctors, you know, that's where you start running into problems. Yeah. Well, and I love there's a quote in there about serving two masters. You can't serve patients and investors, so it gets a little tricky and complicated. It's a great read, and as Jason mentioned, there's a lot of information here, so highly recommend everybody check it out in the magazine. Max Chafkin, Features Editor at Business Week, joining us on the phones from Queens, New York. Thanks, Max. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's get back to the world of economics. It's where we started the show at the top of two with the Fed releasing the minutes from its latest meeting. And those are must-reads at this point as we try and discern what happens next, especially when it comes to monetary policy in this crisis. Let's break it down with our team, Alex Harris. I believe they are the Long Island ladies. The Long Island ladies. (laughs) Queens, guys, Queens. Queens. The Queens, Queens. Uh, The Long Island Queens. Queen of All right. We're going to do that. Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg. She's on the phone from Long Island City, Queens. Elena Shalechevis, senior U.S. economist, Bloomberg Economics. She's on the same island, the island of Long. So, Elena, I want to start with you. What uh, what'd you hear? What would you see in those minutes today? What's the most important thing we need to take away? It's it's pretty close uh, actually in terms of geography, but uh, yeah. Uh, as for the as for the minutes, uh, two things uh, really struck me. So first is about the uh, state of the economy and how much policymakers are concerned about the medium outlook. So this struck us uh, uh, when the statement was released uh, already three weeks ago, but the minutes. Uh, provide a lot of detail about policymakers' concerns about long-term unemployment. So if people lose jobs and stay uh, away from work for quite a long time, they will lose skills. So they already are talking about this in the minutes and uh, about how much uncertainty uh, there is uh, there about future economic outlook. So that's one thing. And another thing is um, uh, was the policy tools uh, discussion. So policymakers obviously reiterated the message that uh, we heard from them in recent public remarks. Uh, the, the minutes noted that they are committed to using its full range of tools to support economic growth. So that includes uh, QE policies, that includes lending programs, and they stand ready to adjust uh, and adapt those existing facilities to better tailor them to business needs. So what was really interesting in this uh, set of minutes is how they would like to uh, reinforce forward guidance. This is a very powerful tool uh, the Fed uh, used in the past. They used it extensively during the financial crisis, and uh, they would like to either 
introduce some sort of uh, outcome-based approach when they tie uh, the um, path for policy rates to some sort of uh, macroeconomic uh, uh, variable such as the unemployment rate, and, or they can do date-based uh, approach when they just say, okay, we're going to keep the rates low until some future date in time. So they used both approaches uh, back in the financial crisis. You know, some of them were quite successful. Some of them were probably not. Uh, so it's not uh, very clear that, uh, you know, they are, these are the ideal tools. But there's a lot of discussion among policymakers about how to reinforce the, the message, so to say, open mouth operations from the Fed. All right. So let's bring in Alex Harris. And I'm curious if you're more interested in the Fed or that 20-year bond auction. I mean, it seems like investors are very happy to buy up anything that the U.S. government puts out there, whether it's 20 years or 30 years. Uh, you know, real quick on the 20-year, I, I, you know, obviously this is the first 20-year auction we've seen in 34 years. Right. So it, it's hard to draw any sort of comparison. But, you know, when the Treasury was debating about, you know, a 50 or 100 year bond and, you know, dealers and other people in the community, in the financial community kept saying, no, 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 20 year, you know, this this is a good sign that you're going to get that interest from the pensions and, and from the life insurers. Um, in terms of the minutes, you know, some of it is, you know, we, Elena mentioned uh policy, you know, it's full range of policy tools, but I think we need to just quickly mention what they did not talk about was negative interest rates. So I'm hoping, and I think a lot of people in in the financial space are hoping that this puts the negative rates discussion to bed. You know, Fed funds, futures, implied rates were back in positive territories. So I think people are like, okay, that's over. So so the fact that it, there was no mention of it, you know, I think was key. You know, there was also a brief mention of yield curve control, which is where they would cap rates at some point on the curve at a certain level. Um, you know, and, and someone had sent me some commentary and, you know, this could be a way the Fed could be seen as sort of expanding, committing to an unlimited expansion of its portfolio. Um you know, if they if they do end up going that route, and I don't think they've put that 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 to bed yet. So so there's something to it there, and something to be mindful of. As we listen to you know members of the FOMC come out and speak. You know, and then the other thing is, at least for the fund and and those those funding market <laughs> wonks. Um, you know, the Soma manager Lori Logan laid out the rationale for why they didn't feel the need to move that interest on excess reserves rate higher and. Right. You know, participants were sort of split during the last meeting, you know, as to whether or not they were going to do it. And it seems like um, they're like, no, nah, we don't we don't feel a need to. We're OK here. But, you know, one of the things if I could ask them anything right now in relation in regards to that is, OK, well, if you don't feel like you, if you feel like the, the bottom of the range is pretty well protected, then why did you make the move? higher, you know, why did you make the tweak in January? Because something was not necessarily adding up for me. And, and I would be curious to know more about, you know, why January warranted such a move. Right. Now with rates at the zero lower bound, it doesn't. All right, guys, listen, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, weighing in on some of uh, the day's news, including those Fed minutes. Uh, Yelena Shalitjeva, Senior U.S. Economist at Bloomberg Economics, on the phone from Long Island, New York, along with Alex Harris, uh, also weighing in on that 20-year bond auction. Bond reporter at Bloomberg News from uh, 
Long Island City, Queens. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, it was pretty hard to find an investment haven, uh, as we know, as the financial markets were selling off, right, initially because of the virus. And yet, Emily Chasen writes in our weekly Bloomberg Green segment that while not many ESG fund managers, their mission was necessarily to protect investors from a global pandemic, it turns out maybe a lot of their funds did. So let's get into it in our Bloomberg Green segment. Emily is sustainability editor at Bloomberg News. She joins us once again on the phone in New York. So Emily, tell us a little bit about this story this week. We we often talk about ESG funds and their mission, and I feel like over the last decade or so, we know that you can kind of have an ESG mission and also get performance, but it sounds like you found out that even during this market downturn caused by the virus, that some of these ESG funds actually outperform maybe some other investments? Yeah, well, so it's interesting because ESG portfolio managers, for years, if you talk to them, they'd say, you know, there was a market downturn in that quarter and we actually outperformed in it. So they've actually sort of bet on resilient companies, even though they were kind of planning for a climate crisis or finding, you know, managers they thought were good and adaptable using ESG scores as a proxy for that. They turned out that they had also sort of bet for this global pandemic. So when you look at um, portfolios and indexes overall, BlackRock did a really interesting study this week where it found that um, in the COVID-19 crisis, 94% of ESG indexes outperformed. And if you look like from 2015 to 2018, when there were market downturns, like 75 to 78% of ESG indexes outperformed. So there seems to be a pattern here. Right. And yet, Emily, you know, there's not a lot of available inventory out there for uh, the regular old 401k investor to really get into these investments. Why? Well, this is what we sort of examined this week in our green newsletter was why these ESG funds that are providing this downside protection are missing from your 401k fund. And it's a little complicated. Um, Bloomberg does have an ESG fund in its 401k, but very few companies have done it because they're worried that they're compromising returns mm. for that. But now now that's not really the case anymore. If you look at you know how this performed, and this is the first big test for a lot of ESG funds that only about 80 ESG funds actually have a five-year track record um, that are large ESG funds. So um, this is the first big test, and they seem to be providing some sort of economic benefit. So I think people are going to wonder why they're not in their 401k plans. It's a great question, right? But wasn't, I felt like for a time, you know, especially when ESG funds were kind of newer on the on the environment or, or the investment, um, you know, landscape, that they didn't always perform as well. But we've seen things change, especially as more companies, you know, your big companies, your S&P 500 companies have really kind of embraced ESG ways. Yeah, there's kind of been a transition from socially responsible investing of the days of yore that it was just kind of finding companies that they didn't think were bad and taking them out of the portfolio, like tobacco or alcohol or weapons, right? But now ESG is much more focused on risk management, which is a good downside protection strategy. And then also they're more focused on using all this information and this new ESG data to find opportunities. So a lot of ESG funds are much more heavily exposed to tech and healthcare, which has actually outperformed in this latest crisis. And they're underexposed to fossil fuel, which, you know, we saw oil go to zero. So that, that was a good move. And Emily, we're always fascinated between, you know, some of the connective tissue in terms of what types of investors are drawn to these types of 
investments. Uh, millennials, we're always concerned about them. You know, I have a millennial co-host in Carol, and, you know, I worry about her, um, you know, not being exposed as much to 401ks. You know, these are the things I worry about. But in all seriousness, like millennials, not so much into uh, retirement savings historically, right? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm technically a millennial also. Oh, there you go. But um, <laughs> they... Millennials are. You really are a millennial. millennial. <laughs> <laughs> barely. You're an barely. actual millennial. <laughs> but so millennials, a lot of them graduated in like the, into the recession of 2008. A lot of them are, you know, underinvested in their 401k, haven't had a lot of money to spare, had a lot of um, debt, you know. So, but millennials who do have money, a huge portion of it is what's actually in their 401k. That's a huge portion of their household investable income. Interesting. And millennials are really excited about ESG. They would really like to invest in it, um, but they don't have that option in the 401k, which is the biggest pool of assets that's available to them for investment in this way. Emily, I do wonder if you wonder about this as well, that because you know of what we're going through right now, this health pandemic, and we're talking a lot about some of the big problems that are facing the global society, whether it's climate change or whether it's future pandemics, whether more, com- more companies kind of embrace ESG ways and they become, you know, that there will be more offerings for ESG funds. I wonder if we're going to see that kind of on the other side of this virus. Just got about 45 seconds here. Yeah, there's been a ton of inflows actually into ESG funds, so I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. And there's been a ton of news coverage, a lot of interest in the space. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Good to catch up with you, Emily Chasen, Sustainability Editor at Bloomberg, part of the Green Team, the Bloomberg Mm -hmm. Green Team. Uh, Timely uh, launch of that earlier this year, because I do think we are, to your point, Carol, we're thinking about this much more holistically. We're thinking about our world, as you like to say, um, in uh, in all facets in many ways. Right. And just some of the big problems. And you do wonder, you know, we we just talked about, was it the bite yesterday, about Unilever and a bunch of other companies that are saying, come on, we've got to work together, public-private partnerships to tackle some of these inequalities that are in our world. Check out all of their work at Bloomberg.com slash green. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Jana Barton. She is co-director of Growth Equities at Eaton Vance, and she joins us on the phone from Boston. Jana, nice to have you here with us. How's it going? It's going well. It's uh, There's some sun outside. I'm seeing a lot more green on my screen. Life is good. <laughs> Life is good. <laughs> you know, I want to ask you something, because one of the big stories that Jason and I have been talking about, and then we'll get into, because we, we love to be able to talk stocks with you, but we're hearing a lot of financial firms, um, whether it's JP Morgan and others, Citigroup, you know, thinking about moving a lot of folks out to the suburbs. And I'm just curious, what's the talk in Boston about because of the virus um, and nervousness about commuting to big cities, you know, that companies are kind of rethinking where their offices are. Um, And I'm just curious what you're hearing about uh, in Boston and particularly maybe among the financial sector. 
Well, majority of our employees are obviously working from home right now. There isn't any talk of having alternative location outside of Boston right now, but I think um, many of those conversations are certainly taking place, and perhaps the answer is um, not one or the other, but maybe a hybrid of, um, or maybe a uh, sort of a three-case scenario where you still have headquarters that are central for your investors, for your clients, for corporate access, but also have the flexibility of working from home and having alternative sort of satellite offices. So um, I think many of these options are on the table, and I'm sure are being discussed as we speak. And Yana, as an investor, as you look at companies, many of which I, I think you're invested in, and, and they sort of work through this, does it change? Like, do you have to model differently? I mean, or, or is it just sort of one of the sort of softer factors that you work in? I mean, I do wonder how we think about, because you guys do, I'm, I'm sure, sort of intensive work on all of your portfolio. Like, do you think about companies differently in terms of, you know, how aggressive they are on this, what their cost structures end up being, how radical does it need to be in, for it to enter into your analysis here? Oh, that's a great question. I think depending on the industry, the real estate cost is a different input. Um, so for retailers, obviously, it's a very different input than for someone um, like an Amazon or a Google, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's more of a question of the overall cost structure and firms that do have the flexibility and variable cost structure because of the model of their own business and that agility, that's a long-term tailwind. So the more flexibility you have in your model, um, better it is for you. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, the profitability stream of companies within tech and perhaps the next-gen secular winners is so much more attractive because these sort of embedded costs are less of an overhang on them. So what do you make of where we are in the markets? And I'm just curious, what, what if any buying have you been either suggesting or looking at uh, right now, especially since, you know, we're, you know, seeing a little bit of a rally again uh, this mm-hmm. week, but it depends on the week, you know, in terms of the tone of the market. So where do you think we are? And, and I'm curious about anything you might have been buying into right now. It's interesting because I was looking at my notes. The last time uh, you and I spoke was kind of in the midst of the most severe drawdown that Mm -hmm. we saw in the marketplace. And we were doing a ton of buying then, uh, which felt very uncomfortable. And I remember we had a lot of conversations about that. But the reason why I bring that up is because this unevenness that we're seeing both in terms of reopening for business and different states doing their own thing, that's the same thing we're seeing in the marketplace. So while on the surface you see the market, albeit still down year to date, the average company is underperforming the cap-weighted index uh, almost two times. As I look at the market here, not inclusive of the rally we had today, we have S&P down just shy of 9%, but the average stock is down 17%. And more importantly, Importantly, um, when you look at specific sectors like consumer discretionary, you've got one outlier, which is Amazon, up over 30%, without which that sector would be down 14%. Again, the reason why I'm providing this context is on the surface it looks like there's a lot of green, but not everything has recovered to the extent that we might believe it has. So like specialty retail area of the market that was bruised during the downturn is still recovering. So that's an area where we're we're interested in and unnimbling here and there. Um, and healthcare is also an area that has been in the headlines where biotech and pharma has done really well. But other companies like med 
devices and life sciences have been left behind. So that's also an area where we're sort of playing the laggards. And so what do you look for in a specialty retailer at this point, Yana? Because I feel like we are starting to see some very distinct winners and losers, or we were before the pandemic set in. And I wonder how that how this experience or sort of looking at who's done what and and how everybody has handled this changes your opinion or or do you look at different things? How does the pandemic change that calculus? Well, um, apologies for my dog there, by the way. Um, I've had my two-year-old daughter scream on air, so no apologies. It's all good. It's all good. I think home improvement is an area that's obviously topical because we had reports today of Lowe's and yesterday of Home Depot, and all of us are stuck at home. I don't know about you, but I'm doing a ton of nesting. So when you see the results from Lowe's that are coming in where you're not only seeing positive comps, but double-digit comps that they haven't seen since, I think, back in 2007, I think there's some durability to that, right? So there are some company-specific things that they're doing in terms of their cost structure and margin improvements, but also sort of do-it-yourself is, um, you know, buyers coming back, and we're doing a lot more buying for outdoor spaces and such. So, um, again, Home Depot versus Lowe's. Uh, We have a position in Lowe's because it's less expensive than Home Depot and has lagged Home Depot year to date. Um, So that's a company-specific story. Uh, We're also intrigued by the off-price retailers as Mm. well. Um, Again, all of those stores are closed. Um, I'm certainly uh, waiting for the opening. I can't tell you how much, uh, but that story is not going away. And if anything, I think those guys will have the upper hand in terms of the inventory that will be stuck in the channels and will wait to be moved. So TJs of the world and others, I think, will be just fine because they have the liquidity, the scale, and the infrastructure. So they're just two examples of what is intriguing to us. But they'll be doing it differently, right? They're going to have to be with social distancing and so on, right? I assume it's going to be a little trickier going back. Absolutely. Uh, I think the point that you're bringing up is an important one, which is we really need to focus on multi-channel um, right. retailer, meaning, you know, and many have showcased and demonstrated the strength you can have from having the digital presence. So Got it's it. ordering online, it's picking up Got it. um, at a curbside pickup yep. and whatever it is. So, Yana, um, we got to run, but you're absolutely right. The multi-channel is going to be important. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.